So one other announcement. Men, there is a men's breakfast this Saturday morning. And agree with the definition of men that Joel just ga gave, ninth grader and above. So uh, whether you're a ninth grade or 90, you're invited to this. And uh, the last men's breakfast, uh, there was the, the guys had a great time. And so sign up is in the back. Okay, uh, please rise for the reading of God's Word. We are in the book of Hebrews, going chapter by chapter through Hebrews. We are in chapter 2. Verse 17, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he, speaking of Jesus here, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this truth, this fact. This undeniable reality that is written into creation that you sent your son, Jesus, to be made in all things like us. To suffer in all things like us. To be tempted in all things like us. That we may live a life faithful to you. We thank you for this wonderful news, Lord. I pray that you open up our hearts, eyes, and ears this morning to the fullness of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. The book of Hebrews, a, le a letter written to the followers of Jesus who were suffering persecution uh, and loss because of their faith. As we discussed, it appears that at the time of this letter, this persecution had been going on for a number of years. We know from later on in the book, from chapter 10, that these uh, Jewish Christians were initially, they, when they suffered loss because of their faith, they responded with joy, recognizing that it was a privilege to suffer for their Lord. It says that they actually rejoiced when in the first days of their persecution. Their possessions were plundered, confiscated, and stolen. The trial allowed them to relate with Jesus, who not only had his possessions plundered, his garments were distributed to the Roman soldiers by lot, but his life, his very life was plundered. Isaiah 52 says it was so plundered that it, his appearance became marred, it became disfigured more than any man. At the time he was on the cross, by the time he even got there, he was unrecognizable. And so these Jewish Christians, remembering that, rejoiced in their suffering. And that, that is God's plan for us in a season of, of suffering. Paul says to the Philippians, he says, Oh, that I would know Christ in the strength of his resurrection power, but also in fellowship with his sufferings. But as the persecution went from weeks to months and then months to years, their faith began to be tested as never before. Their discouragement began to set in, and this is a place where every Christian gets to, a place where their faith is tested as never before. 
And the question for you this morning, what are you going to do when you get there? How are you going to respond? Such an important question for, for you and me. You know, God knows how to encourage us when we're in that place. And that's why this letter was written. <laughs> so how does he do it? By putting Jesus Christ front and center from the beginning to the end. Again, we've read uh, the first verse of the, of the letter, God Verse chapter uh, 1, verse 1, who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, being the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by his word, by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, cleared them away, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Just a reminder to them, front and center, of who it was that they served. He is the brightness of the glory of God, the express image of God's person, Upholding all things by the word of his power. And sometimes just the best thing to do when you're in a place of suffering, any place, just to remember who Jesus is. He was not just some guy whose life is worth paying a lot of attention to. No, verse 2 says he is... Verse 3 says he is the brightness of God's glory. He's not just someone who lived after Socrates and Plato, but before Buddha and Confucius, who, like them, was exceptionally wise, but he was also exceedingly courageous and kind to boot. No, he was, as verse 3 continues, the express image of God's person. He wasn't just an example to you. He died for you. Verse 3 of chapter 1 continues that he by himself purged our sins on the cross, wiped them out. And we read in chapter 2, verse 3, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Jesus is just, he's not just some guy for you and me to analyze, to study, to reflect upon, to talk about with others. No, Jesus is your very life, and God forbid that we neglect him with our life. Putting Jesus front and center in, in, in a time like this, and it will lift any man, any woman out of their discouragement, out of your funk. The writer goes on in chapter 2, remember he's writing to encourage them, their faith is being tried as never before. He goes on uh, to tell them in, ch in this chapter uh, 2 that uh, we're at the end of today that, uh, and, and don't think that Jesus uh, once he saved you and sat down at the right hand of the majesty, he's now uninvolved with your life. No, he's the captain of your salvation who has taken full responsibility to take the ship of your life from where it is today right, onto, right into eternity. Verse 10 says, for it was fitting. Verse 10 of chapter 2 says, it was fitting for him for whom all are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sin, uh, sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect uh, through suffering. Jesus didn't just save you for you to sit in a holding tank until you get to heaven someday. He's transforming you now. He's preparing you for heaven now. He has a plan for your life and a work for you to do now. Verse 11 says, For both 
he, speaking of G Jesus, who sanctifies, meaning uh, makes you holy, and those who are being sanctified, those who are being made holy by him, are all of one. And, and not only that, uh, he, he, he's transforming you. Uh, uh, we also read last week that though Jesus is God, it says in verse 8 of chapter 1, that it says, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. Though he is God, it says at the end of verse 11 of chapter 2, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So this Jesus, he's your brother. He is your brother. Jesus is your brother. Verse 17 goes on to say, we read it this morning at the end of the chapter. So the chapter finishes out, therefore, in all things. He had to be made like his brethren, like his brothers, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, that means to make payment for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So Jesus the captain of your salvation. He has taken full responsibility to take your ship into eternity. And so much of what that means, so much of what it means, being your captain, your coach, your brother, is helping you in temptation. And brothers and sisters, I'm so glad that he is our captain um, and he can uh, navigate us through that because temptation is so much a part of life. And it is the one thing that can shipwreck your faith. I'm so glad the captain of my ship is Jesus. Temptation, it's the one thing that can trash your joy. It can trash who uh, God wants you uh, to be. They're like jagged edged rocks coming out of the water. Temptation, what is it? It's the enticement to disobey God's word. It's the invitation to evil. It's the draw, the pull, the allurement to something which is a substitute for Jesus Christ. The temptation is supremely, it's just something that wants to draw us away from the joy of the Lord and the comfort of the Lord. Sometimes it's a, just a painful, nagging annoyance. And other times it's like a 10-ton magnet just trying to draw us in. All the time the Bible teaches you have the ability to say no. Romans chapter 6, it's the glorious good news. You're not only saved from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. You never have to say yes to temptation. So how is that? Well, we, that's what uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 is about. It's, how is that? It's because of Jesus. Our captain, our coach, our brother. He's also, John chapter 15, he's called it, he calls us his friend. He's able to help us, verse 18, in temptation to be over, when we feel overcome by temptation. So verse 17, let's break this down. It says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters 
that, it says, he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Remember, this letter is written to Hebrews, Jews, who were well familiar with the Jewish scriptures and what we call the Old Testament. Now, the high priest is a very central figure in the Old Testament. The high priest uh, who represented the people before God, but he also represented God to the people. The high priest in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, this Uh, is a subject that comes over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is our high priest. And it says here in verse 17 that in order to be our merciful and faithful high priest, it says that he was made in all things like us. In the book of Luke, it says that when it came time for Jesus' mother to give birth to him. She was turned away from the inn, so she gave birth to him somewhere outside the inn, and, and he was laid in a feeding trough for cattle. The Greek word fatne, translated in English manger, means a feeding trough, a trough where donkeys and camels ate out of. They cleared it out and put Jesus in there. In all things, he was made like his brethren. And among other things, that means he wasn't born into a life of ease. He knows what life on planet earth uh, is like. He lived it. And one of the most telling things to me about the life of Jesus is that in a Uh, following Old Testament law, which required that all Jewish parents present their young baby boys uh, to the temple with an animal sacrifice, Joseph and Mary offered two pigeons. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 12, two pigeons were offered when poor people couldn't afford the lamb for their boy. So, he grew up as in a family of the working poor. He grew up as the son of a carpenter. Somewhere along the way, his father died, which probably means he became the breadwinner as a carpenter. He knew what life on a, a fallen planet Earth was like in all things, verse 17 says. He was made like his brethren. He took on flesh and blood. Sometimes you hear people talk about Jesus, it's like he came for a while, but you know, he'd walk somewhere on the sand or something, but ooh, there's no footprints there. Ooh, you know, it's like a spirit type of deal. No, he was flesh and blood. He knew the pain of hunger and thirst. He knew what it was like to be exposed to the, uh, the freezing cold and the scorching heat. He knew what it was like to have his flesh ripped open which it was by the lashes of a Roman flagellum, a whip made out of four to six leather cords, which had pieces of uh, rock and lead and glass in it for the very purpose of tearing the flesh off the body, off the victim. He knew, Jesus knew what it was like to have nails uh, driven into his flesh. He knew what it was like to have a following of thousands of people, and then to have all of them walk away. He knew what it was like to be rejected by his family, deserted by his closest friends, even betrayed by one of them. He knew what it was like to be innocent, but be widely reported and declared as guilty. He knew what it was like to be despised. Ever felt despised? I have. (laughs) You don't have to raise your hands. He knew what it was like to be mocked. Jesus knew what sleeplessness was like. And you know, that, that, that's something I can really relate to. You read in the gospel of Jesus being weary, being weary, unable to eat or sleep because of long hours, day, day after day into night of people pressing in on him. In Luke 6, 12, it records a time when Jesus prayed all night. And one of the things I I think is just not emphasized enough that from the time that he was arrested to the time he was crucified, he almost certainly had no sleep. And when you consider what he went through, it's just amazing. 
he was arrested probably very early in the morning, immediately taken to Jewish chief priests who began to just interrogate him, being, says he was hit with their fists and he was mocked and he was blindfolded. Um, by them. He, after that was finished, he was taken to Pilate where he went through another type of, of trial and interrogation. Uh, Pilate didn't want to deal with him, so he sent him to Herod. It says that Herod, it says before Herod, the Jews, uh, the Jewish priests vehemently accused him. It's a man who's been up all night, and just imagine these, these men, other men accusing him, are in his face, reviling him, pressing in on him, all with no sleep. Herod takes him back to Pilate, who had another trial of sorts. The Pilate releases him to a bunch of Roman soldiers to be crucified, but before they crucified Jesus, they took him to the Roman Praetorium, where they beat him, put a scarlet robe on him, uh, wrapped a crown of thorns around his head, mocked him, spit on him. Finally, they took him uh, uh, to outside of the city, so that he had to be dragged outside of the city up to Golgotha, where he was crucified. Uh, got there somewhere between the time of 9 a.m. and 12 noon. Jesus knew what it was like to collapse from exhaustion. It's because of that he did that very thing that the Roman soldiers pulled a man, Simon of Cyrene, out of the crowd to carry the cross to the place of crucifixion. So the point is, all of that is going on. All of that is going on, being dragged from one place to the next with no sleep. I mean, it's hard enough going through a trial when you're, you have a full, uh, you know, night of sleep. But to have no sleep, sleeplessness, so much a part of the human conditions. In all things, Jesus was made like his brethren. He knows. It says in Hebrews 2.17, in all things he had was made like his brethren. Why? So that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Okay, now, listen up on this one. You, me, we, you need to get the lie out of your head that Jesus is reluctant to forgive you, wherever you have been, whatever you have done, that he's a, that when he forgives, he sort of does it, well, okay, if I must, because he's a merciful high priest. He so desperately wants to forgive you. He's a merciful high priest. Why? Because he suffered like you. Yes, without sin, we read in Hebrews 4.14, he suffered like um, us, uh, tempted in all points, yet without sin. But he knows what it's like. And, and it's, it's, it's hard to sometimes to come up with an example of, of what this means, but man, I, I try, so I'm going to try now. Give you a sort of a, a crude kind of example. When I was a teenager, okay, I started playing high school football. Now, prior to that, I had been a sports nut. I was just like, it was my, bro my brother and I, it was like our whole life. And, but I'd never done tackle football. And, oh man, when I started tackle football in South Florida in the summer, I mean, you talk about a baptism by fire. Whew. Have you ever been in South Florida in the middle of summer? 95% plus humidity every day. I mean, you can't hang out in the shade, at least I can't, without just becoming drenched. I mean, that's just what it's like there. And we didn't practice in the cool of the morning. We practiced in the middle of the day. And, and just 
just going through hitting drills, you know, where they get you up and you're, you know, you get flat on your back, you know, two, you put, you're, you're flat on your back, another guy's flat on your back, they blow a whistle, you get up and you smash each other and you spend half of your time with your face in the dirt and, and man, by the time you get home at the end of the day, you know, you're just covered with dirt, you're covered with it. And I remember just like drinking a whole quart of milk when I got home because we'd be in these running drills and, and, and jumping up and down drills, you know. And, and, you know, the grass was long gone in these practice fields. It was just all about dirt and sun and heat. And, oh, man, I was like, I can't believe this. This is nothing, not, nothing. This is like nothing I've ever known. But the thing about football in South Florida in the late 70s, yes, I'm that old, is that, you know, forget about like the modern sort of make sure and treat the kids all right. I mean, our coaches, those guys were yellers. And they ruled by fear. And they did it, by the way, very successfully from the world standpoint, a very successful football program. And, man, if you made a mistake in a game, you were mocked in front of the whole team. I mean, you were just, ugh, if you could just go live in a cave for a second. And, you know, you, the kids are just trained to laugh at that type of thing. And, 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 and these guys, they, they were brutal. I mean, they'd kick you on the can. They would smack you on the helmet. One of the, one of the coaches, one of the nicer ones, I remember him being so mad, he ripped a guy's helmet off in the middle of the game. I mean, you know, th today these guys would have all been fired. Some of them probably would have been arrested. But uh, anyway, I, I, I made it through my sophomore year without quitting, <laughs> Okay. Next to the year, my junior year, I picked up cross country. <laughs> but um, I made it through my sophomore year without quitting. And I can say this, though, is I can totally relate to the guys who did quit. Completely relate to it. I really, really could feel for them. And I know this is, uh, all human analogies break down, but... The point is, Jesus took on flesh and blood. He knows what misery is. He knows what suffering is. He knows what walking about in a fallen world in a body of flesh and blood is all about. Now, he never gave up the faith. He never quit the faith even for a minute. But he knew the suffering so well. He knew it so well. He was so intimate with it. He completely understands when you and I choose to sin, to give up and sin rather than to suffer on by faith. He completely understands why you, rather than uh, live with the shame of poverty, would steal. He, re he completely understands, rather than be mocked for obeying God's word, you would choose to disobey it. He would completely understands, rather than uh, being scorned for sharing the good news, would keep silent. Rather than live through the pain of rejection, uh, choose alcohol or pot or uh, sex out of marriage. Rather than being... Uh, 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 be tired by uh, getting up early to be with God why, why you, you know, why you choose to sleep in. Rather be despised for righteousness, uh, you choose uh, to be accepted by doing whatever. Uh, rather than going through the pain of sexual temptation, choose uh, pornography. Rather than suffer through the pain of loneliness, uh, choosing an ungodly relationship. He knows. He has been so familiar with the suffering, only so much more than we'll ever know. Jesus knows what it's like to be staring God's will in the face and thinking, you know, there's not a single molecule in my body that wants to follow God's will. Not a single molecule in my 
body. Just let me, you know, what is that, you know, every once in a while, so just let me retire to my wife, my 1.5 kids, and live a normal life in the country. I don't feel like going on with this. Uh, please, you know, Lord, don't let me go on. Jesus knows that temptation. Matthew uh, chapter 26, Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. So badly did he want uh, another way than God's way. He told his disciple, m disciples, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful uh, even to death. And so great was his emotional pain that the book of uh, Luke says his uh, blood, uh, his sweat became as drops of blood. This is actually a rare med medical condition called hemohydrosis, which occurs during extreme emotional trauma when the capillaries uh, in the sweat glands rupture, resulting in the excretion of blood into uh, the sweat. He knows. He knows. What it is like to have not even a single molecule wanting to continue on with God's will. But verse 17 says he's a merciful uh, high priest, meaning he is so ready to forgive you. He knows who you are and what you have been through, and he longs to forgive you. You don't have to strive for his forgiveness. He's not reluctant to forgive. He knows the weakness of flesh and blood. He can totally relate to your failure. And he came to forgive. Jesus said in the book of John, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it, to forgive it. So Jesus knows how to minister to you when rather than press on with God's will in your life, you choose, chose to walk away. You chose to, you chose to Give in to temptation. You to chose to hold on to it and live with it for a season. He knows. He's a merciful and faithful uh, high priest. And, you know, I don't know if, if you've been in this place, and, uh, but, but have you ever cried out to God for wisdom and heard nothing? Have you ever cried out to God for comfort and, and, and uh, only to have the pain continued? Have you, have you cried out for, for healing only to have the sickness get worse? Have you uh, cried out to, uh, for God to ease up the trial? I mean, cool out, God. Come, ease up on this thing only to have it get worse. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows about that place. He's been there. So the writer of the Hebrews is writing to a people who had probably been praying for their trial to ease up. It didn't. It seemed like God was silent. In the Psalms, King David cries out, God, how long, how long are you going to be silent? You know, and, and so here is, when God is silent, uh, th that is when temptation is, is at its worst. Man, if God isn't given his wisdom, I'm just going to go with the wisdom of the world. If God isn't going to give me comfort, I'm going to go seek the world's version of comfort. If he's going to heal me of this sickness, I'm just going to have to go someplace else to get the healing. Now, I can't possibly overemphasize how dangerous a place this can be. We're in the, where you're in the place where I'm feeling forsaken. I'm going to I'm going to try the world's way. I just think in the area of healing, you know, I've shared my testimony of about five years ago. I had been living for about a year and a half with just the most awful uh, neck pain that had originated with a childhood injury. <clears throat> and it was so terrible that the doctor, my doctor, had prescribed two kinds of 
narcotics for me to take simultaneously. It was just crazy. I had so much, to make a long story short, I had so much medication pumping through my veins that my heart went into an uh, arrhythmia, an irregular heartbeat, and, and I had to check myself into the hospital, go on medical leave. Scott, Pastor Scott, took over the pulpit, I, and, and I decided, you know, I, I just can't live like this. I got to get rid of all this stuff. And so what happened, of course, all the pain comes back with full, full force. And for any of you who have ever been in a lot of pain, I mean, it just, it literally drives you crazy. I mean, and you, you want to do anything to get out of it. And I was just a slobbering mess. I mean, I, I just couldn't stand it. And, and um, you know, having to go through the whole withdrawal process of coming off these prescriptions was, you know, in the middle of it all. So uh, anyway, you got to understand that by this point, this has been going on for a few years, I tried every doctor, every pain medication, every rehabilitation specialist, and of course, everyone's just sort of offering their opinion and, and this type of thing. But there was one doctor, a woman in Newton, who was well-known nationally for an innovative kind of um, physical therapy. And I had been on her waiting list for about six months, and, and I had just been called in. And so uh, to give you the picture of what was going on, this was it. I mean, I was at the bottom of the barrel, and this, is, this was my last hope. Now, please understand and don't be deceived by modern media and advertising or anything else. Listen very carefully. There are many healing methods out there today which are nothing more than occultic, meaning, by that I mean, they are demonic means of healing, masqueraded as something else. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. And listen, you can write this down, and if, I'm sorry if I'm offending someone, if, if, if I do, don't shout it out, Talk to me after the service, but Reiki or Reiki is one of them. I know it is. <laughs> Just go into Reiki.org and start to read and compare that with your Bible. Reiki, it says, is just on Reiki.org. This is the official site, not some uh, crazy preacher's opinion of it. This is their site. It says it's administered by the laying on of hands and is based on the idea that an unseen life uh, uh, force energy th uh, flows through you. It is spiritual in nature. It comes from God. It's a spiritually guided uh, energy. And the treatment feels like a wonderful glowing radiance that flows around and through you. Uh, this happens because of what is called attunement. Attunement is given by a Reiki master who allows their student to tap into an unlimited supply of life force energy. This terminology is pure deception. Now again, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. When you tap into that kind of, uh, of healing, you are tapping into something that is very destructive for you spiritually. And if you don't believe me, Come talk to me. I got plenty, uh, plenty of uh, stories to tell you of what happened to people who went this route. <laughs> so anyway, I, so I come into this uh, uh, physical therapist's offers, uh, office, and I see some Reiki signs up, but that doesn't really bother me because, you know, if you've had pain medication and you've gone to things like chiropractors and stuff, some of the chiropractors, although they're totally clean themselves, they try to help people out by putting alternative forms of, uh, uh, of medicine up there. And so it didn't really um, uh, bother me that she had a couple of these signs. There was a couple of other new age type of things there too. And so anyway, I, I, the first couple of times, uh, you know, I went to this woman, it was kind of normal. But when I was at the height of my pain, off my res uh, medication, this was it. She was the last resort. I went there with Stephanie, my wife, and I'm sitting there uh, lying on this um, 
you know, this table. And all of a sudden, this woman starts saying, okay, now, Jesus, I want you to come into this room. And she starts chanting things and calling uh, Jesus or a Jesus into the room. And, and I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> I'm a pastor of a new church. <laughs> and, 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 and so, you know, she gets through her thing and I say, um, are you a Christian? She says, oh, no. But I know that you are, and so I just take advantage of any kind of spiritual force when I can. And so I'm, I just wanted to call Jesus into the room. And so what became very evident to me during the conversation is this woman, while not a Reiki master maybe, had completely was opened herself up as a part of her healing practice to the demonic world. And... There are so many Christians who they're not hearing from God. They're not being healed through uh, in their sickness. They're not being healed through regular means. And so they, they say, well, I'm sorry. I feel forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I'm going to go somewhere else. Well, at that time, I had a choice to make. Who is my Lord? And... Was I going to move forward as Jesus did for me, by the way? When he, when, 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 when the father, he, uh, the, when the father was being silent for good purpose, by the way, to, to die for us in the sins of the world, or was I just going to continue with this thing and this was my last resort? And I got to tell you, it wasn't easy. You know, I wasn't like this, oh, well, obviously, I'm not going to do this. This was it. I mean, I'm going crazy in my pain. But I had to choose no. And I got to tell you, it is so helpful to me to know that I have a faithful and merciful high priest who is made in all things like me who, as verse seven, 18 says, has suffered being tempted, and now he's able to aid or help those, including myself, who are tempted. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, actually it was soon after he got on the cross, he cried out because he was thirsty and someone brought him a sponge that was filled with wine or vinegar mixed with gall. Now gall was a medicinal kind of liquid that was used to give people who were being crucified, among other things, to dull their pain. He turned it down. Why? That wasn't God's way. God didn't want him healed in that way. Isaiah 53 says that on the cross, Jesus took all our pain, the pain we deserve to suffer because of our sin, Jesus took it on. And it wasn't God's will for that pain to be diluted even a bit. Jesus took the full force of the pain. He knows what it's like to be there in that trial you're in, in that place of testing, in that affliction. Now, let me conclude with this. And this is the good news. And this is what's so critical. If you miss this point, you miss what the Holy Spirit is driving home in these two verses. Jesus is the captain of our salvation. He's our coach, our friend, our brother, it says. That means not only is he merciful with us when we've given in to temptation, we've ravaged a part of our life because of it. He's not only merciful by his mercy that, you know, he forgives us and he restores us, uh, but uh, not just to fall into temptation again, verse 18 says, but to help us steer away the next time, to help us withstand it, to help us overcome it. You know, I like 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, but Jesus will give you a means of 
escape. So don't think, because this is a lie, that just because you're overwhelmed by sin, overtaken by sin, well, I just got to get a give in. Ever give in to that lie? Yes, me, multiple times. I'm overtaken by it. I'm overwhelmed by it. I'm just a human. I guess I just got to do it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, there is no temptation that has overtaken you that he doesn't provide for you a means of, uh, of escape. And, and verse 18 of, of chapter 2 in Hebrews says, no, he has suffered through the same thing and he will aid you through it. I love Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Uh, Jesus speaking to the apostle Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you. It's a creepy kind of thought, isn't it? that you may be sifted as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but God is, except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation, he will also make the way of escape that you may be able to, to bear it. I love, you know, talking about the, the help, the aid that Jesus uh, gives us. I was just reading this week. It says, in Galatians 4, 6, it says, and because you are, son, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his son, which in your hearts, which cries out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, help me, is, is a translation there. And then finally, I love Hebrews chapter 11, the last couple verses of that chapter. Turn with me there, and we'll just close there. Now, Hebrews chapter 11, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible uh, the writer goes through the list of the greatest men and women of faith of, uh, in history, and actually in the Old Testament, and it gives a brief description of what made them great. It is one awesome chapter. We will get there someday. But maybe the most astonishing thing about this chapter is the last two verses. Let's read them together. It says, and all these, speaking of all these men and women who had had lies filled with faith, having obtained a good testimony through faith, and that's what you want, that's what I want, says they did not receive the promise. God, verse 40, having provided something better for us, meaning we have the promise that they never got. And as great as, as they were, as awesome as their faith is, faith was, we, they didn't receive the promise. We did. What is the promise? Je- Jesus says it in, in, in Acts chapter 1. Wait upon me until you receive the promise. Speaking of the Holy Spirit and to the disciples in the, uh, in, in the book of John, John chapter 15, he says, it's good that I go away because if I go away, Actually, this is John 14. I will send the comforter to you, the Holy Spirit, the power, the the aid, the help that we have, Jesus himself in our temptation. The last chapter of 2 Corinthians says, Paul asked the Corinthians, do you not know that Jesus Christ lives in you? (laughs) We have Christ in us. He's the hope of our glory, and he is with him we are overcome and we shall overcome and that's the 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 great news and and jesus being so faithful so faithful to go forward on the cross to the cross on the cross to the very end could have come down after he had felt forsaken by god didn't for you and for me. And so, we'd just like to close this morning remembering the cross with communion. And so we're going to have communion now, and 
Actually, if the worship team could come up and the people who have been asked to pray as well. All of these promises, this, this promise of being able to overcome in the midst of temptation uh, is a promise for a believer in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus' first public testimony, his first public uh, speaking, his, his per first public declaration, he declared, repent, for the kingdom of God is among you. In order to know the kingdom life, and in, in order to be a part of God's kingdom, and in order to have any bit of this entire sermon apply to you at all, the Bible says that you need to believe what Jesus has done for you, and you need to repent, meaning you need to turn away from a life in which you know you've been on the throne and you need to let Jesus replace you there. The Bible says that he knocks at the door of your heart, Revelation 3.20. He's knocking, wanting to forgive, wanting to come in, wanting to give you an abundant life, wanting to save you from hell and destruction, wanting to give you a life in eternity together with him. He's knocking at the door of your heart. If you'd like, if you've never done that and like to and like to do that today, the worship team is going to begin playing. We have some people up here uh, praying, and uh, just come right on up and uh, pray. They'll pray through this prayer with you. Or the Bible says that when we uh, uh, that communion time is a time of reflection, a time to examine ourselves. If you feel like you have been holding on to something, whether it's unforgiveness or some hidden sin or whatever it may be uh, that you have been holding on to, the Bible says, let a man, a woman examine himself, herself before communion. If you just like to, to pray through basically anything, they don't even have to be specific, uh, we're up here to pray with you. Uh, meanwhile, uh, everyone else uh, in uh, while the while the worship team is p praying, we have grape juice and crackers over there and over there. Just as the worship team is 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 uh, playing, you can just get up, uh, go get the elements, return to your seat, and we will have communion together. Okay. Jesus, my passion.
Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. This is Paul by the Holy Spirit. He says, For I, re I have received from the Lord that which I have also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we, we long for your son to come. Lord Jesus, we do long for your return. But until you do, we ask for the grace to remember the cross. To remember the body that was broken. To remember the blood that was poured. To remember that 
was all done for us. To remember that you became, Lord Jesus, flesh and blood. So that in, in every way you could be a faithful and merciful high priest. We thank you that you're not only a high priest, you're a captain, a coach, a friend, a brother. Oh, that, Lord, we would, for the grace to go out this week, to be always giving thanks, always rejoicing, always praying. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, please rise. We're going to close with a worship song.